Ignition running. Liftoff. We have a liftoff. Good evening, welcome. It is Eric Erickson here, News 95.5 AM 750 WSB. Joining me, the Governor of Georgia, Brian Kemp. Thanks very much for being back with me. Oh, great to be on with you, Eric. Thank you. So, just out of the gate, I, what are you, the challenges you're finding now? You, you've been in the Governor's office for since January, and what, what do you see as the biggest challenges being Governor? Well, I think certainly during session we had a lot of challenges just, you know, dealing with the legislative agenda, agenda of the the other members that are down here serving this great state, but we had a historic session, very proud of what we did on health care, you know, Patients First Act, largest historical teacher pay raise in state history, did a lot on school safety, um, created the Georgians First for small business. You know, now that session's over and we've gotten through the bill signing and, and the, the vetoes, and I'm really focused on the day-to-day operations of state government, looking at how we can streamline government, make it more efficient, do more with less. And that's really what we're digging into. Uh, I think the challenge for me is finding enough time every day to deal with that. Uh, but we got a lot of good people that are, that are focused on that and working on that, and we're moving the needle every day. I want to talk about some of your picks that you've made uh insurance commissioner john king some of the judicial picks out there uh even the ajc is noticing that democrats are surprised your your willingness to pick a diverse slate of candidates well it makes me very nervous when the ajc starts writing good articles <laughs> about me uh but we'll, we'll take it. it it was a very uh you know it was a very good article it's the truth i mean we made some some very diverse picks but uh, they're people that interviewed well they have good character good morals they're going to follow especially for the judicial picks they're going to follow the law uh, and not try to make law that was very clear in the interview so very comfortable with those individuals they line up with a lot of things that i'm interested in Uh, many of them have been prosecutors uh, and they understand the balance between things like accountability courts but also uh, being tough on crime and on gangs and, and dealing with the, the folks that, you know, need to be locked up if, if, the, if the jury decides that. So, you know, I was very, very uh, excited about those picks. I'm very comfortable with that. In my mind, uh, John King, you know, we interviewed John King for the adjunct general job back during the transition. So, mm-hmm. and I've known John before that. He is a man, as I said in the interviews, after the pick he has high integrity he served our country uh, he's been serving as a police chief and i felt like you know we need a person that has high integrity to go into that office to restore the public's trust over there but he also has a record of you know straightening things out that need straightening out and uh, that's a little bit of the situation that we're in over there now and you know half of what that agency does is investigations when you look at you know fire fire investigations insurance investigations and that's what john has a lot of experience in and uh, he's going to be a great leader you know also a historic pick being that uh he he is a you know hispanic latino and um i think that's going to resonate with a lot of people and once they get to know him they're going he's going to resonate even more it it was an interesting pick i i think because some people said that he's the police chief of Doraville. This is the insurance commissioner. What role does he have in insurance? And yet, as you mentioned, the, the investigative role that that agency has, I, I assume that he, he'll be bringing in some other people there as well. Oh, yeah. And look, I think for people that don't really understand about the insurance commissioner's office, it's a lot like being secretary of state. You know, secretary of state, we did a lot of regulating. We dealt with licensing boards that you're familiar with. 
we regulated securities over there and you're doing that regulation you're following the law and the rules that are in place you're not making those uh, but you also have to run large operations like over in the secretary of state's office we had 250 employees uh, so you need somebody that can manage people that has run large operations before that's dealt with budgets and hr and that's what john's military experience has given him as well as his service uh, as police chief and so you know i think he's going to bring that good structure uh, he can get good people underneath him that that are experts and all these different things that he's going to be dealing with and so that was really my number one priority a man of integrity but also somebody that could run an executive branch agency and i've had the experience of doing that so i know what it takes to do that and a lot of people that haven't i think they just hear insurance and think you got to hire a, an insurance agent you know but right. i mean ralph hudgens was not a you know the former commissioner was not a insurance agent you know mm -hmm. he was a legislator that chaired the insurance committee and um you know so uh, john's gonna do great and the more people get to know him the more they're gonna like him great governor i want to talk to you now about your trip to korea economic development obviously is a big issue for governors uh when nathan deal left the office and in, in the back of his ceremony office there there were a pile of of shovels from all the projects that happened when he was governor you're now collecting them um, where do you, what do you see as your role here for trying to attract business to the state? Well, look, I want to uh, keep you know keep going with uh, what Governor Deal and Sonny Perdue before him did. I mean, I think uh, when you when you come into these situations, there's a lot of things that folks have been working on for a long time, and I know Governor Deal benefited from that when he came into office following Sonny Perdue, and I certainly have as well. But look, our business environment's great here. Uh, my number one job is to keep it that way, and I think this session sent a great message that we're going to do that. Uh, it, it funded our values. Our workforce is one of our top issues in our state, and having good teachers is a big part of that. Uh, what we're doing through our technical system and higher ed you know, sends a strong message to the workforce and to these companies that Georgia's open for business, our tax environment continues to be good we're continuing to look at that the georgians first commission is looking at cutting government regulations and red tape making it even easier to do business tomorrow in georgia than it is today uh, but i have been working tirelessly on projects uh, the department of economic development's doing a great job we've had some great announcements you know and they're they're it's a wide spectrum of things, Eric. You know, the largest foreign investment ever in the state. I was fortunate enough to be at the groundbreaking up in Jackson County with SK Innovation. Mm -hmm. 2,000 jobs, $1.7 billion of investment. I believe with the growth that you're going to see in the electric vehicle market that that, that plant and facility is going to end up being something like the scale that we have with Kia in West Georgia. Um, we're working on other big things right now, but we've also done smaller things that matter in local communities. Sanjin Brake Technologies, another uh, South Korean company, they did a $20 million investment, a couple of hundred jobs down there. But that's huge in, in Henry County. Right. Um, Novell Parts Manufacturer did 50 jobs in Cairo. Well, 50 jobs in Cairo, Georgia, is means just as much as the 500 that was announced that Invesco is mm -hmm. doing in Atlanta the other day. So, you know, I know that we have to have a diverse economy in Georgia. Uh, we need to be growing jobs and opportunities in all parts of our state, and I'm focused on that, including rural Georgia. But we're also still focused on the great market we have here in the metro area. So, you know, that's what this trip to South Korea is all about, to thank our friends that have made decisions to, to be here like Sanjin and, 
in SK Innovations, but also we've got a couple of prospecting meetings that we're doing over there uh, to continue to, to move the needle on economic development, bring jobs and opportunity to Georgia. Nice. Now, what goes into the governor's office planning a trip like this? Uh, why first South Korea as your as your big trip? Well, I think when we looked at where we were going to go, obviously your first trip as governor sends a, a message to mm-hmm. what's you know very important to you. We have a lot of great partners around the world and other places that I'll be traveling. But we just have so much going on right now with South Korea, things that we've done recently, opportunities that we're working on. But also a decades-long, you know, probably close to two decades now, uh, long history with South Korea. And I I think it's a great first place for us to travel. we got a very busy uh, schedule from the time we land Sunday night through when we leave the following Friday morning, I think it is. We have, you know, we're leaving the hotel at 7 in the morning and getting in after 9. We're having dinners every night with different companies and and folks that we're working on over there. So it's a, definitely a working trip, and I think it will be very successful. I'm excited about it. Well, good luck to you. Governor Kip. thanks very much for stopping by and spending some time with us. Great to be back on with you, Eric. Thanks for all you're doing. Thank you. I'm so excited to have Blinds.com sponsoring the show because I actually need new blinds, and I've been thinking about going there, and I really didn't know a lot about them. Then they asked to sponsor the podcast. I've heard others sponsor them as well. We've got some um, wooden shutters, and you know what? Blinds.com can take care of you. For many of us, our blinds or whatever you have in the window, they're an afterthought. But with brand new made-to-order custom window coverings from Blinds.com, you can really transform the look and feel of your entire home. When they're right, everything in your home looks better. When they're wrong, the home looks cheap. And you know what? If you need new blinds, go to Blinds.com. With 15 million windows covered and over 30,000 five-star customer reviews, Blinds.com is America's number one online retailer for affordable quality custom window coverings whether you're looking for energy efficiency you just moved you want to refresh your homes blinds.com makes the whole experience fast and easy blinds.com makes it fast and easy you get free samples free shipping free online design consultation what you can do is you can send them pictures of your house they send it back custom recommendations from a professional about what works with your color scheme your furniture your specific rooms they'll even send you free samples to make sure everything's good in person and this is the best part if you accidentally mismeasure or pick the wrong color if you made a mistake Blinds.com is going to remake the blinds for free. They are really easy to use, really easy to work with. For a limited time, you get $20 off at Blinds.com when you use promo code ERIC, E-R-I-C-K. That's Blinds.com. Your promo code is ERIC for $20 off. Faux wood blinds, cellular shades, roller shades, they got a lot. Blinds.com, promo code ERIC. Rules and restrictions apply. My thanks to Governor Kemp for sitting down with me to uh, discuss those issues. There were other things I did want to talk about, but I just didn't have time. And also with all the weather stuff this afternoon, it's just been kind of crazy. Now, now, a couple more things on on Brian Kemp. Uh, One of the the facts I did not know about John King, the insurance commissioner, is that uh, when in the military, he helped play a role in building the border wall. Did not know that. Interesting Interesting guy. I'm going to have to try to reach out and do an interview with him. Um, the The governor, we talked a little bit behind the scenes, and, and he, we had a little more time uh, before going in depth on the um, on the insurance commissioner pick, and he touched on this in the interview. But 
it's important to understand that the role of the insurance commissioner is to do investigations. And he is, by training, an investigator. And I, I have had other people, um, not the governor, but others, tell me they expect that uh, John King will be cleaning up some more in the insurance commissioner's office and removing a few people and bringing in some other people to help him, which will be good. Um, he's Josh McCoon is there, who's a great resource for him, I think. Uh, and that'll be that'll be good for him as well. So uh, thank you again to the governor for doing that. He'll be going, as he said, for a week to South Korea. And there are more economic development news coming. Uh, you know, as I mentioned to him, Nathan Deal in that ceremonial office. So, so the, the governor has a, a small private office, but also the large ceremonial office. The ceremonial office, they, they, that's what they use for the photos and everything else. He doesn't normally work in there. And I do have to say that uh, there was a lot more stuff in there when Nathan Deal was governor, although he had been governor for eight years. Uh, one of the things were these piles of shovels. Uh, t- governors typically are given shovels when there's a new jobs project. Governor uh, Kemp already has several of them, but Nathan Deal had been there for eight years and a pile of them. It's just, it's funny to see the things that one accumulates in office over time. Uh, now, we need to move on here to other issues. Uh, the federal government has had hearings on reparations, slave reparations. Uh, should they do it? How should they be implemented? On the campaign trail, a uh, number of the candidates have come out in favor of them. Democrats in the House representatives coming out in favor of them. Um, I'm interested to hear what you think on this issue. The phone number here is 404 872 750 wsb talk You know, Barack Obama was asked about the reparations issue when he was on the campaign trail. Now, uh, just so you know, I think that the reparations issue is only coming up right now because affirmative action keeps getting scaled back. And as affirmative action gets scaled back, uh, there are a number of politicians who want to come up with something else, um, largely because we do live, if we're honest, in a grievance society where people, um, politicians find it profitable to convince people that they're victims and affirmative action is one way that obviously there there have been disparities. And now, of course, we're led to believe that all disparities are somehow intentional discrimination. And therefore, uh, we need affirmative action. I'm just not sure that that is something we really need. And in we it's not something we need to continue pursuing. So... Now that they're on the way say, way out because of court decisions, the new thing is, hey, let's have reparations. I don't know that that's going to go very well. When we come back, I want to play what Barack Obama said when he was asked about this. Also, Chuck Todd of NBC getting a lot of heat from Democrats today for calling Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez out for concentration camp remarks. I got that audio. It's worth playing. We'll get into all of this when we come back. Rumor is out that the Federal Reserve is going to cut some rates. Chris Burns is going to join me at 5.08 to tell us what that all means. Uh, right now, though, I, I wasn't going to talk about this here, but I, I want to talk about this here because it it is suddenly a big deal within the Democratic primary. First of all, can I say it, it is ridiculous that they are attacking Joe Biden for racism. Joe Biden is not a racist. 
it's it's dumb. Um, but we are at the point where progressives are trying everything they can to take him out. The polling shows, and this is why they're doing it. You need to understand this. Uh, Joe Biden is the top pick for black female voters in America right now. And black female voters happen to be the largest constituency in Democratic primaries. So they have to try to convince black female voters that Joe Biden is bad news. So they're pushing the racist stuff, which is a weaponizing race against their own side. But here's the thing. The media is running these reports against Joe Biden. They're they're running. Uh, for example, here's Joe Biden talking about his crime bill in 1994. This is the one Democrats now say is a bad thing. Let me tell you what is in the bill. And I'll let you all decide whether or not this is weak. Let me get down here a compendium of the things that are in the bill. One, the death penalty. It provides 53 death penalty offenses. Weak as can be, you know? We do everything but hang people for jaywalking in this bill. That's weak stuff. Now, what he's talking about is, is uh, some Republicans were saying that his piece of legislation, his, his crime package, was soft on crime. So he's showing that how many death penalty cases were in there. We do everything but hang people for jaywalking. It, it, it's, it's a tough bill. It's the bill now Democrats hate. And they're accusing Biden of racism and rounding up black men and uh, standing with segregationists, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. The time to have this conversation was 2008 when he was running for president. The time to have this conversation was 2008 when he was Barack Obama's vice presidential nominee and then the vice president of the United States. This is the man Barack Obama gave the presidential medal of freedom to. He's not a racist. It's dumb. Um, and it's it's ridiculous for the Democrats to go down this. But but it's nice to see they do this on their own side now. But it's also notable to see how few report, reporters ever had any interest in pursuing the story when Biden was the uh, sitting vice president of the United States. And now suddenly it's big news, big news. These these 20, 30 and 40 year old stories, huge news now. Well, the other big one is reparations. Uh, Taylor Sutton is an Episcopal priest post-Christian Episcopal priest, uh, was on TV talking about reparations. Let me play you a little bit of this audio. No, I, I'm, I'm not saying that you should feel, uh, feel guilty. You should feel a responsibility as I do, as all of us do. So 250 years of slavery, and then the next 150 years, and we're still involved in this. And it was only about 40 or 50 years ago that we uh, witnessed the end of the Jim Crow laws. And that came after a hundred years of struggle after that. Do you really believe that um, uh, just uh, based on what the great accomplishments we've been able to make in this nation in the last 30 years, that that ad adequately redresses the debt that we have all inherited? Well, what about the people who died on the battlefield in the Civil War to free the slaves? I mean, will will we be able to do a lineage trace on their families and say, you know what, you guys don't have to pay reparations because you actually lost family members who were fighting the Civil War? I mean, that that's that's the thing here. We we as a nation fought a civil war to free the slaves. We amended the Constitution. To say we need to do reparations now, we we, we need to do monetary reparations for slavery. A whole lot of people died to free the slaves. A whole lot of people died 
And, and, and you, you notice he recognized there's been great progress in the last 30, 40 years. Um, what do you think happens when you, you, you write checks to people? You're going to have a whole lot of Americans say, okay, we, we, we coughed up money. We're done now. No more progress. We're, we're, we're not lifting a finger anymore. We, we've done what we need to do. I, I mean, why do they want to provide an excuse to abdicate the responsibility to continue to improve society? Well, they want to because affirmative action was the thing that uh, so many people – so many activists pursued for so long, it's now falling uh, on the courts to say, you know what, you can't give people preference based on skin color. That's unconstitutional. And well, so now we got to move for reparations, which could not be easily implemented. Here's Barack Obama. I, I think the reparations we need uh, right here in South Carolina is investment, for example, in our schools. Uh, yeah, I, I did a... I did, a, I did a town hall meeting in Florence, South Carolina, uh, in an area called the Corridor of Shame. They've got buildings uh, that students are trying to learn in that were built right after the Civil War. Uh, and we've got teachers uh, who are not trained to teach the subjects they're teaching in, high uh, dropout rates. We've got to understand that there are corridors of shame all across the country. And if we make the investments and understand that those are our children, that's the kind of reparations that are really going to make a difference. It, in anyone, it, it, uh, yeah, there you go. Now, if you can hear that, the, the audio is it's it's old audio, and and we had trouble with the audio there. But basically, uh, Barack Obama said, uh, "Fund schools, get kids educations." He's also went on to say in in a subsequent matter that that it worked to keep families together. That's the reparations we need. You know, when the federal government steps in and tries to improve the lives of people, more often than not, the federal government ruins lives. That's just the reality. Uh, and and reparations gives people a couple. But here's the other thing. I don't know a whole lot of people who think it's a good idea, regardless of race. Now, there are certainly activists who do. There are certainly pundits who do. But actual voting Americans outside of Washington, D.C., regardless of race, no, nah, everyone kind of understands. You know, none of us did this. The Constitution specifically says that the, the children should not be held for the sins of their parents. So this is just, this is a dumb idea designed, this is the key here, it is designed to fuel a grievance and make people think they're a victim. It's the same thing Democrats and Republicans both, both sides have done it with immigration. Both sides have done it with immigration. They don't want to fix the issue they just want you to get mad at the other side, and they're trying to find a grievance for you to be mad at the other side about. And now that grievance is, well, the other side is holding up a check for me to to fi fund me for things that happen to people I never met. That's that's what they're doing here. How would you implement this? What, what about someone who, because of periods of... Uh, marriage within families among races that children now can be accused of white privilege, even though they had ancestors who were black. Do, do they get money? Do they get a different amount of money? Uh, wh what about the families who they came here in the 1950s and 60s, but they moved to the South, and so Jim Crow affected them? Do they get money? Do they get a different amount of money? See, the, the whole practical aspect of this is dumb, but the overriding issue is we fought a war and people died. There is the payment. We amended the Constitution. We are not a perfect society, and we never will be. 
you pay reparations, then suddenly the desire to improve on that issue goes away completely because, hey, we coughed up money. Done deal. Move on. And then see what happens. It is time to take phone calls. Eric Erickson here. The phone number 404-872-0750, 1-800-WSB-TALK. Andy in Douglasville, you're up first. Welcome. Hey, good afternoon. Thank you for taking my call. Sure. So, on to reparations. The obvious, the only fair way to do it is to figure out where to come up with the money for it. Well, by my logic, and try to follow me here, I think that the only way reasonably to do it would be to tax white registered Democrat voters. And the reason I say this is because the Democrats perpetrated the racism, the slavery, for much longer than it needed to. That's true. So, and it should also appeal to their kind-hearted nature, in my mind, to want to help out. So, Well, I I wonder how much the land value is for the Democratic National Committee headquarters in Washington, D.C. That's kind of what I'm thinking, because, I mean, you know, they want to be fair and keep everything nice and on an even keel. So, since they're the ones who caused the problem, the Republicans fought the Civil War, we helped our, we, we did our part. Yeah. So, I believe the Democrats should have to pony up the bill, and once enough people say that out loud, I think they might quiet down. Well, they won't, but yeah, I, I totally get your point. Andy, thanks very much for the phone call. Steven in Snellville, you are up next. Welcome. Thank you, Eric. Thank you for your voice, and thank you for everything that you do. Thank you. I have a problem with the reparations. Your previous caller made a very good point, but I'm of the Jewish faith. Do I go to Egypt and tell the Egyptians that held my people for being slaves all those years? Do I go back even that far if they want to go back 400 years? The other problem I have is even with the German people, with the Holocaust and killing my people amongst other religious people too. How in the world does anything like this make any sense to anybody is beyond my recollection well it it, it doesn't except when you understand that democrats play identity politics and they've got to fuel a grievance to try to stir people up to get them to turn out and and i think they're playing a dangerous divisive game in doing so unfortunately but that is what they are doing now we we've got to move on from this topic i'm i'm sorry We, we got to move on um, we have other news, but you, those callers give you a good sense of pretty much where everybody is. Um, and you know what? Actually, let me take one more phone call here. Mike is worth getting to in Lawrenceville. Mike, welcome. Hi. Uh, both sides of my family, mother and father, um, came to this country in the early 1800s. Uh, my father's family in Ohio, my mother's in Indiana, because they were so-called free states. On my mother's side of the family, um, they helped escaping slaves to the north and lived in southern Indiana. And the Klan came across the border and lynched um, in front of their wives and children a couple of my male relatives for the outrage against the Confederacy. I'm curious, do I have to pay reparations? Well, see, this is the thing. This is the thing. He, he, who knows how the Democrats want to, it, it? It totally is impossible to implement. Um, I mean, but, I, I gave it the office. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, your, your family's already given it. It's just it, it, thanks very much for that. Yeah, that, that's the point here. It, it, 
it's not going to happen. Um, but the Democrats certainly need to divide people and fuel more grievances uh, to continue to get elected. Um, I'll tell you where this is going to hurt them as well, the Hispanic vote. The president making a big play for Hispanic voters, and the Democrats should be worried about that. They And they think that demographics is destiny. They have it in the bag, and they don't. It's going to be a problem for them. Now, uh, the S&P uh, shot up today. Uh, news of a Federal Reserve rate cut on the horizon, potentially. Chris Burns is going to join me to give the breakdown of that when we come back. Real quick, I want to continue to remind you about Help the Persecuted. This is our charity of the month that we are supporting. Uh, they help Christians in the Middle East, refugees, the persecuted Christians in Muslim countries. If you're interested in helping them or learning more, text WSB to 345-345. I'll send you back a link to their website so you can learn more about them and potentially support them. Uh, we will be doing a new charity next month, but this month help the persecuted and you can help them. It's nine after the hour. I am Eric Erickson. This is Atlanta's Evening News on WSB. Uh, stock market up today. The S&P 500. Uh, new highs there. It, it's up significantly. And man, uh, Facebook was up today. Amazon was up today. Netflix, uh, Google, which is now called Alphabet, which is a stupid name. Uh, it's up. Uh, just, just great stuff today in the stock market. And it's all on the heels of a rumor that there may be a rate reduction by the Fed. The best person to ask about this sort of stuff is my buddy Chris Burns. Uh, welcome, Chris. How are you? I'm good. I love Alphabet is a stupid name. Somebody finally said it. So hey, thank you, sir. You, you know another stupid name? Truist. <laughs> I kept pushing for Gringotts Bank, which I have <laughs> kids to be excited about. Yeah, yeah you nobody know. Nobody at SunTrust listened to me. They paid a million dollars for Truist. So there you go. Uh, what a what a stupid name. Yes, I'm going to Truist Park, which is a truthy park. Yeah, it just uh, anyway. That's not why why you're here. We I could complain about that all night. So what's up with the stock market rally today? Yeah, it's fascinating because so nobody's ever unhappy, right? When when their 401k goes up, when their investments go up. But the reality is the reason for this is because of expectations that the Fed is going to lower interest rates. And if you aren't someone that sits and looks at this stuff on a regular basis. Basically, when the economy is doing really well, the Fed tends to increase interest rates to keep inflation in check and keep from overheating. When the economy is not doing well, they lower interest rates to try to you know, bring more money into the market and into play so that the economy recovers. And 10 years ago, when we had the Great Recession, we saw interest rates drop to basically zero, right? And then we went into this whole quantitative easing thing where we bought trillions of dollars of our own bonds. Here's the issue. Since then, we've slowly been raising rates. Why? Because the economy has been fantastic. So the idea of lowering rates is super exciting for the market because it just means more money out there. And so businesses are going to grow, et cetera. But honestly, I'm a little concerned because we haven't raised rates that much. And so you have to wonder if we start dra dropping rates when, when honestly things still look pretty darn good in the economy, what happens when they don't? when we don't have any room left to lower rates anymore. Right. So that's, that's my, 
that's not the most popular perspective, but that's that's kind of how I think. Well, about it. yeah, and I I think you're right on that, and I'm no expert on it, but th- th- it's always been my understanding here. And, and I guess my question for you is: Do you think maybe the Fed is seeing something on the horizon that's making them nervous? They are. I mean, the, there's an interesting reality. You know, anytime you look at data, you can extrapolate it any way you want. So the jobs report that just came out, for instance shows still this remarkably long record-breaking streak of, of uh, low unemployment, um, but it's a little bit less than last month. So people are saying, well, hey, look, you know, things are slowing down. Maybe unemployment will start going up, even though that actually hasn't happened yet, right? The other reality here is, as we know, Washington plays a big part in this. The Fed is supposed to be apolitical. They're supposed to be kind of removed, but President Trump has been very, very vocal about how he feels Fed policy should act and that they should be lowering rates. And so you have pretty strong pressure on the Fed to do so. And I'm not actually saying they're kind of going to lose lose here, because if they who are far more intelligent than I am, if they really do see economic problems in the coming on the horizon and they want to lower rates, that's fine. But it's going to be hard for it not to be viewed by most people as a political move because there's been such outspoken push for them to do that. Right. Yeah, I, I, I'm, the politicization there concerns me. Um, okay, Chris Burns, so now I, I got another question for you here. Um, sure. Obviously, from a consumer standpoint, uh, the Fed cuts rates, the stock market skyrockets, everything looks good, but obviously th- there may be some warning signs out there. If you're a consumer right now uh, looking at all of this, uh, what things do you think consumers need to be thinking about? That's a great question, because honestly, no matter what your political leaning here, the real key is how do you react proactively because you don't have any control over it. So the the key is this. There's two sides to this coin. The first is, man, if you're someone who is looking to take out to buy a new home, et cetera, there was a lot of concern that mortgage rates were going to be going up. And this really allays that. I mean, if anything, we're going to see rates probably drop in the next number of months. So it's a great time to be a home to get that 30-year fixed mortgage because we've never seen rates this low before. That's a great thing. The flip side is if you're nearing retirement and you're relying on that low-risk fixed investments are going to provide you the kind of return, kind of interest to hopefully give you that steady base of income, this is problematic because as rates stay low, that means things like CDs, money market funds, et cetera aren't returning anything like they used to historically. And so that actually really hurts folks that are nearing retirement. So there is no one good or bad here. It really depends on where you're at, but it's really important to stay on top of it because it will impact you directly. All right, Chris Burns, you got any closing thoughts for us here on this one? My main closing thought is Toy Story 4 is coming out tonight. And what in the world? <laughs> Toy Story 4. Yeah, I, I've, seen your, I've seen your tweets on, on this. Toy Story 3? I thought we were done with Toy Story. You know, I will tell you that uh, a couple of friends of mine got sneak peeks of this, and they absolutely loved it. And they're in in the camp you and I are in that there's no need for a fourth one. And right. they said that the, this fourth one is such an intimate story about Woody himself uh, that it sells itself when you see it. Well, it's ninety eight percent on Rotten Tomatoes, which says something. But I mean, there's, at some level, it's like I literally cried at the montage at the end of the third. Yes. One. And then a few years, it's it, it, to me, it's like turning The Hobbit into three movies. It's just a money grab. But hey, if it's a good money grab, then here we go. Buy stock in Disney. Yeah, you know, my my kids, uh, they they did not like the third one because they did not like the the going into the fire pit thing. 
at the end. They were right. both little when it came out, and, and to this day they have hostile memories of that movie. Now, now they they loved Incredibles too, but yeah, my wife and I may have to leave them at home to go see this one. Right. Well, we can go with you. That sounds like fun. Absolutely. And then Spider Man in a couple weeks. That's right. That's right. Hey, thank you so much. Yeah. But yeah. And the main thing is everybody just you need to understand how this impacts your situation because it's not monolithic. You know, if you're a person, if you're a younger person, 30s, 40s, you're going to do really well with rate cuts. But if you're nearing retirement, this could actually be problematic. So make sure to understand how it impacts you. Good for me. Bad for my parents. Chris Burns. Thanks very much, as always. All right. Hey, thanks, Eric. Chris Burns, uh, Dynamic Money. You can hear him on Sunday mornings here on WSB. You can also check out his website, dynamicmoney.com. Great guy. If you need some financial planning advice, uh, reach out to Chris. Uh, good, good guy. Uh, great company. Gives some very sound advice as well. In fact, I had my very Chris Burnsy moment uh, last week. I was coming back from Louisiana. I have a three-year-old Denali, Yukon. Uh, had almost 100,000 miles on it. And I looked in the, the, the trade-in value once I crossed 100,000 miles with this thing, it's just, it was ridiculous depreciation. And so I went to Jim Ellis and said, uh, can I trade this? What? Even though the interest rates are higher now than when I got it three years ago. And they put me in a brand new Yukon. My wife made me get black. I had a white one. This is a black one, but fully loaded Denali 2019. And my payment is actually less than it was with my 2016, just because of the, the the they had structured my payment plan last time, that if I had this for three years, knowing how many miles I put on my car, y'all, I, I've had my new car since Friday, and I'm already topping 800 miles. It, I got it with 14 miles off. I drive a whole lot, way more than I should. Um, but still, it's an awesome car. It's a sweet ride. And I did actually think to myself, this is very Chris Burnsy of me. I'm getting a new car, and my payment's actually going to be less, even though the car's better, just because of all that. So, now, that being said, when we come back, Georgia is going to – there's a prisoner on death row. Uh, the execution is scheduled for 7 p.m. The state of Georgia, the state Supreme Court, has ruled 7 to 1 uh, that he shall not uh, be reprieved. There will be no reprieve. They're now appealing a rush expedition to the U.S. Supreme Court trying to uh, get a stay of execution. That is unlikely. I will tell you why when we come back. Why will I do this? Because so often when these cases come up, everyone does the poor pitiful man he's going to be executed and ignores completely the victims. So let me tell you this story when we come back. If you don't know your numbers, you really don't know your business. And the problem a lot of growing businesses have is they've got a bunch of different systems, so they don't really know their systems. They've got a system for accounting, another for sales, another for inventory, and so on. It's a big and efficient mess, taking a lot of time, a lot of resources, and it hurts the bottom line. Well, Oracle is introducing NetSuite. It's a business management software. It handles every aspect of your business in an easy-to-use cloud format, giving you the visibility and control you need to grow. With NetSuite, you save time, money, and unneeded headaches by managing sales, finance, accounting, orders, HR, everything from your desktop or even your phone. It's why NetSuite's the no number one cloud business system in the world. And right now, NetSuite is offering valuable insight with free guide, seven key strategies to grow your profits at netsuite.com slash Eric. That's netsuite.com slash Eric. Download your free guide, seven key strategies to grow your profits, netsuite.com slash Eric. The 
Supreme Court of the United States in a 7-2 decision today ruled that uh, leaving a big Roman cross monument in Maryland uh, is not an establishment of religion. The cross was built after World War I to honor the dead who did not return home from the battlefields. It has been there for 100 years. And, of course, the National Humanist Society and, and the Atheists of America all filed a lawsuit. What's so striking to me in this is, is that Ruth Bader Ginsburg and Sonia Sotomayor have consistently been the two lone voices uh, in the decisions uh, against religious liberty. Uh, Sotomayor, even more so than Ginsburg— deeply, deeply hostile to religious liberty in the United States, uh, but Ginsburg as well. Uh, and she used to not be as hostile, Ginsburg is, but it almost strikes me as Ginsburg, knowing she would, there would only be two of them in the minority, got to unleash uh, as fully as she wanted to in her dissent. Sotomayor as well, uh, consistently hostile to religion in this country. Uh, which a, a Democratic friend of mine said that hell hath no fury like a lapsed Catholic. Um, and that, that largely explains Sotomayor. Elena Kagan, Stephen Breyer joining the majority in the decision. Uh, they have been actually with the majority fairly consistently on religious liberty issues. What's so crazy to me is that uh, the atheists decided that now is the time to pick this fight. The cross has been there for 100 years, and also it is a, a tangible reminder, or it should be to all of us, just how intimidated atheists are by religious imagery. That cross was not there sharing the gospel. There was no religious message on it. It was just there, a monument to the war dead. It took on a life of its own over 100 years, and yet it became something offensive to a group of God-haters who demanded that the cross be destroyed because they, they, it was offensive to them. In some way, it wounded their soul, and all it was was a cross. Uh, that, that should tell you everything you need to know about the anti-theists, not the atheists. There's no such thing as an atheist. Everybody has a God, even if they don't want to admit it. Uh, but the anti-theists who saw a monument, a hundred-year-old monument, as a threat to them and now thinks that religious liberty is under attack because religious liberty was defended. Hello there. The phone number here, if you would like to be a part of the program, 404-872-0750, wsb talk We need to talk about the Iranian situation, but before we do, I just want to play this audio um, because I, I think it's worth commending uh, Chuck Todd from NBC's Meet the Press for taking on Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez and her ridiculous concentration camp remarks. With untenable situation, perhaps. But do you know what's, you can't call it? Take a listen. The United States is running concentration camps on our southern border. And that is exactly what they are. They are concentration camps. I was obviously New York Congresswoman Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez on Instagram. After being criticized, Ocasio-Cortez tried to make a distinction between concentration camps and Nazi death camps, where the industrialized mass slaughter of the Holocaust occurred. Fair enough. But Congresswoman, tens of thousands were also brutalized, tortured, starved, and ultimately died in concentration camps. 
camps like Dachau. If you want to criticize the shameful treatment of people at our southern border, fine. You'll have plenty of company, but be careful comparing them to Nazi concentration camps because they're not at all comparable in the slightest. But here's where it's uh, upsetting as her comment. Some Democrats have been reluctant to condemn her remarks. They don't want to get criticized on Twitter. Fellow New York Congressman Jerry Nadler tweeted in response, one of the lessons from the Holocaust is never again. We fail to learn that lesson when we don't call out such inhumanity right in front of us. Jerry Nadler surely knows migrant detainment camps are not the same as concentration camps. So why didn't he just say that? Why are we so sheepish calling out people we agree with politically these days? Obviously, this isn't a Democratic Party thing. It's an even bigger problem on the Republican side of the aisle when it comes to President Trump and the reluctance there. Are we really so ensconced in our political bubbles, liberal versus conservative, that we cannot talk about right versus wrong anymore? Some things are bigger than partisanship, or at least they used to be. And in the interim, the crux of what's truly at stake is lost. What is this country going to do about what's happening at the border in this humanitarian crisis? We'll get to that at some point, I guess, after we have this debate. I have no doubt Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez cares deeply about what's happening at the border. But she just did the people there a tremendous disservice by distracting from their plight. She said she didn't use those words lightly. Well, neither did I. Good for him. He's getting lit up by Democrats offended by his remarks. How are they more offended by Chuck Todd pointing out that this is not a concentration camp uh, than they are by Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez giving the Republicans more ammunition to point out how out of touch the Democrats are. You want more ammunition of how out of touch the Democrats are? Consider their opposition to the president's um, extreme examination of people coming into this country. Uh, when you hear this. A really significant development. A Syrian refugee is behind bars this morning, accused of plotting an attack on a Pittsburgh church in the name of ISIS. The FBI has arrested the 21-year-old man. They made this arrest just yesterday, and court records show that he bought bomb-making materials and had a multi-point plan for the attack. The thwarted attack comes less than eight months after a shooter opened fire on that synagogue in Pittsburgh, killing 11 people in that city. Yeah, so a Syrian refugee, maybe extreme vetting that the president wanted was a good idea after all, and yet Democrats were opposed to that as well. Now, so... Iran. Uh, you know, it was very interesting. The initial speculation was possibly that Iran just photoshopped an image of the drone being blown up. But it turns out to be real. The U.S. military is confirming it. It was not in Iranian airspace, though. It was in international airspace. Uh, and that is an act of war. But keep in mind, the Chinese forced down an American uh, military aircraft uh, right after George Bush became president. We didn't treat that as an act of war. They also seized a submarine drone of the United States and held it before releasing it. We didn't consider that an act of war. Uh, so will we consider this an act of war? It is very, very clear that the president does not want war with uh, Iran. Now, here's what you need to understand. And this really is the story of the day. It is confirmed by multiple friends of mine within the National Security Council, uh, some of whom have been longtime friends of mine. It is also confirmed very publicly by Marco Rubio today. Uh, Marco Rubio with a, a long thread on Twitter about this. Uh, there is buzz from certain holdover bureaucrats from the Obama administration that the president wants war, or now, because the president has been so forceful against the idea of war, 
that the president's administration wants war and he's fighting back against them, that the president of the United States doesn't want to go to war with with Iran, but John Bolton does. And the president's having to fight John Bolton and the National Security Council because they want war. They're warmongers. They need to go. The president needs to get rid of them because they're going to push him into war. Well, we can only go to war if the president, the commander in chief, wants war and he doesn't. What's going on here is that there are some holdover bureaucrats uh, that have favorable ties to the media because of their days in the Obama administration. They're still deeply resentful of the scuttling of the Iran deal, and they are pushing a chaotic agenda within the White House to cast doubt on the National Security Council advisors, hoping that the president will get rid of them and find a different uh, path forward. Uh, you, You can go check Marco Rubio's Twitter feed if you want more on this, but there are certainly people within the administration who want a tough stance on Iran. The president wants a tough stance on Iran. He just doesn't want war with Iran. More notably, what appears to be happening here is the Russians are using Iran as a playground with which to experiment with new tactics to test American military might. They tried that in Syria. And if you will recall, they sent in military forces and a group of six American soldiers managed to wipe out something like 40 Russian mercenaries. Uh, which is one of the very uh, one of the stories that should have gotten much more media attention. Maybe it'll be turned into a movie. But yeah, in Syria, uh, the Russians sent mercenaries after a a small group of American soldiers that were in the field, and those five or six American soldiers managed to wipe out uh, twenty five or so. Russian mercenaries that were actually Russian soldiers, but were sent into Syria. See, the Russians couldn't say they had an official military presence there, so they sent their soldiers in and claimed they were mercenaries. And and five or six Americans took them out. Uh, so the Russians are now using Iran as a playground to experiment with anti-drone technology and whatnot against the Americans. It appears they've come up with something that can take down American drones in international waters. And we're going to have to launch a response. I don't know what that response will be. But you can certainly believe it'll be something. The more curious thing to me are the members of the media who are willing to push Iranian propaganda and, of course, members of uh, the media as well and and U.S. senators claiming that, oh, you know, but for the president withdrawing from the Iranian deal, this would have never happened. Yeah, yeah. It's amazing they're blaming Donald Trump for Iran, a consistent longtime terrorist regime. They're blaming Donald Trump for Iran's behavior. That pretty much tells you everything you need to know about them, not the president. Now, last thing on Iran, the U.S. government has just released the certified flight path of the drone showing it got very near Iranian territorial waters but did not actually cross into them, and yet Iran shot them down. You can expect a U.S. response on this. Uh, The Senate and House leadership just got a briefing from the White House on the situation. Uh, We will see soon what happens.